It is, it is an absolute joy to be with you. Uh, thank you so much for, for inviting me. And, um, uh, you know, I, I'm so grateful particularly to, to uh, Mike Betts, who, by the way, doesn't he do a phenomenal job serving and leading, pouring himself out? And one of the things I love about this family of churches is you have this very unusual, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's a really unusual combination of, uh, you know, a sort of apostolic just courage. We're going to plant churches, we're going to grow churches, we're not ashamed of the gospel. But it is married with a kind of depth of spirituality, a commitment to prayer and integrity in relationships. And uh, I know that last night... Um, you thought together about really the relational mission vision, uh, which is to see everybody as a witness, to see churches multiplying and growing, but also to see enough prayer. And that is obviously what I want to speak about today, the, the, the prayer life, not just of you as individuals, but of your churches and of this family of churches, a time where the Spirit of God is actually speaking to his church worldwide about prayer in an extraordinary way. So in this, in this talk, I'm going to talk particularly about intercession. And then uh, those of you who come to my seminar later, uh, we're going to look more at sort of how you can grow your own personal prayer lives um, and and go deeper in that way. So uh, let's, uh, uh, this talk is called Heavy Rain, and uh, I want to look therefore at a very famous story, 1 Kings chapter 18. And this is the background to where we're going to start reading is this. Elijah's having that big showdown, remember, with 850 prophets of Baal. And um, they've met in the foothills of Mount Carmel. Carmel means God's vineyard. They've met in the foothills of God's vineyard. And um, they, Elijah's come up with this great idea. Let's each build an altar uh, and uh, put a sacrifice on the altar and uh, let's see who can get their God to send fire to consume the uh, sacrifice. And so the prophets of Baal go first, get into a terrible state. Elijah takes the mickey out of them. Uh, it doesn't work. And eventually Elijah steps forward and he kind of goes, do you know what? Just before uh, I pray, why don't we just pour some water over my sacrifice? Make it a bit harder for God, you know. And uh, this is the end of a three-and-a-half-year drought, so water is unbelievably precious. And they, they, they pour water, and you need to remember this, three times over the sacrifice. Whenever you hear sort of the number three or the number seven in the Bible, you need to kind of go, they pour water three times. Every one of you got baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They baptized the sacrifice three times. And then the fire fell. You've got to be baptized in water and baptized in the Spirit. The fire falls, consumes the sacrifice, and then it gets a little bit messy. And then uh, Elijah steps into this extraordinary moment of authority. So let's start reading 1 Kings 18, verses 41 uh, to 46. Who's got the Bible in book format here? Just give me a wave. Nice, old school. Anyone who here didn't know you could get it as a, as a book? Okay, those of you who are reading on your phones or iPads, uh, don't play Angry Birds. 
or you'll go to hell. So, um, 1 Kings 18, 41 to 46. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. You feel the drama of this. Elijah is this scruffy prophet. Ahab is the king. And Elijah is giving orders to the king. Go, eat, drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and he put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant. And the servant went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot. Go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rainstorm came on and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. And the power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. I hear the sound of a heavy rain. The seasons changing. A sudden urgency. A time for old curses to be broken and God's blessings to break in. We see this in the nation right now. The storm clouds are gathering over the United Kingdom. You know this, for good and for ill. It's extraordinary to see David Lammy, MP, who's a friend of mine, on Channel 4 yesterday. And talking about the Grenfell Towers fire disaster. And he said this is a tale of two cities, to quote Dickens. Even in Kensington, you've got the richest postcode in the country in South Kensington and Chelsea. And some of the poorest in North Kensington. This is the tale of two cities. And if you're poor, you don't even get stuff that will save your life properly provided. Everyone's cutting corners. And, and you know that story from Dickens, Tale of Two Cities begins, it was the worst of times and it was the best of times. And these are the times in which we live. It is the best of times and it is the worst of times. The nights are getting darker, the lights are getting brighter. Live with the paradox. It's not one or the other. We can't be happy clappy when the heart of the world is breaking, but neither can we be full of despair when Jesus Christ has promised he will build his church and all things will work together for good and he that is in us is greater than he that's in the world and all the rest of it. Amen. So we live in the paradox of the tale of two cities. The storm clouds are gathering and that is what we've seen. Attacks in Manchester, attacks on Westminster Bridge, on London Bridge, uh, people dying in, in that terrible disaster at Grenfell Towers. Right now, riots taking place right now at uh, North 
Kensington council offices, uh, town, the town uh, council there. People are so angry. This is happening in our nation. God help us if we gather in a nice place like this, sing happy, clappy songs when people are so angry and broken and hurting. The storm clouds are gathering in our nation and it is terrible and it is wonderful. But I tell you this, change is on the way. You better pray and you better get ready because the storm clouds are gathering. I hear the sound of a heavy rain. And uh, let me give you a few snapshots of some of the good news. Because, you know, no one has a problem with prayer. No, 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 no one. No, none of you have a problem with prayer. People will say to me, oh, I find, I, I, I'm not called to prayer. I find prayer difficult. You do not have a problem with prayer. I can prove it to you. If you go to the doctor and he tells you you've got a week to live, none of you is going to come away and go, oh, I really ought to pray about this, but I just find it so difficult. <laughs> You're going to cry out to God. We have a problem with comfort. But when the comforts get taken away, Grenfell Towers and Manchester Arena and on London Bridge when you lose your job and when you're fighting illness, that is when you learn to pray, right? And so it's always when it's the best of times and worst of times that the people of God finally rediscover prayer. Let me show you literally some snapshots from around the world. I want you to see what God is doing around the world. Here's the first one. Take a look at this. This was a prayer meeting uh, about a month ago now in Bloemfontein in South Africa. Three million people there. This, that took about six weeks to organize on social media. Now, we don't actually know the numbers, but we know uh, Angus Buchan, who organized it, shifted 1.4 million parking permits. And no one drives to Bloemfontein without at least two other people. Now, there are questions about, uh, you know, um, some of the politics and some of the economics behind that prayer meeting. But open your eyes and see the sign of the times. That's despair in a nation whose political, economic, and cultural crisis makes ours look easy. Finally, people are coming together and saying, we have got to cry out to God and three million plus get together to pray at six weeks' notice. You see, when God begins to take away the political and economic and social crutches, we begin to cry out to God. Let me show you another picture. Let's move from Africa to uh, Asia. This is Indonesia, which is the world's fourth largest nation. This is in Jakarta. I was invited to go and speak at a prayer meeting. Turned up, found myself, I mean, I only had a few minutes, but speaking to 90,000 people in this particular prayer meeting. And by the way, it wasn't a, an event calling, you know, that was a bit of fun calling itself a prayer meeting. They'd mostly been fasting for several days, these 90,000 people. This event was linked to about 300 others. There were about 3 million people at the prayer meeting in the world's largest Muslim nation. Hello? I flew from this prayer meeting up to North Sumatra, uh, to the city of Medan. And uh, I, I met a pastor there whose church was 119 people in 1993. It's now 40,000 people. They're planting a new church every 12 days. They've translated the Bible into the dialects of five unreached people groups. And they're running a medical center that's treated hundreds of thousands of people. Hello? You never heard of them. You never heard of this guy. I said to him, how is this possible he'd asked me to speak to his staff team I don't know there's about 3,000 there staff team you know I said to him at the end I thought we might pray for some people he said no I said what do you mean no he said if you give them space to pray you'll lose complete control of the meeting <laughs> it's interesting isn't it 
I tried to do a few funny stories, you know, like we like to do here. Bombed. This guy stood up. It was just like hearing the Apostle Paul. I hear some of you are quarreling. This should not be so. We will take the bread and the wine. You must come and repent. I hear some of you people are joining your churches from other churches. You must send them back. We are one body. It was just like this apostolic edict. And here am I trying to sell these silly little funny stories. God help us all. And, and uh, so I said to him, where did this come from? How did this happen? He said, oh, it's very simple. 1998, Asian economic crisis. Our money was suddenly massively devalued. There was riots on the streets. Our president was deposed. There was racial conflict. And finally, the church leaders got together and said, we need to see if 2 Chronicles 7, 13, and 14 is true, where God says, when things go wrong, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked way, then I will. And he says, hear their prayers. That's miracles in the supernatural. Forgive their sins, that sanctification within the church and salvation amongst the lost. And I will heal their land. That's something beyond just big churches. That is deep uh, reconciliation, environmental, political, economic, uh, in the creative arts and education and every other field. So, so, so God says when things go wrong. You shouldn't be surprised when things go wrong. He says when. Later Jesus says you will have trouble in this life. We don't see that on many Instagram feeds. If, so that the if is whether we respond with trying to rebrand ourselves and re-strategize ourselves out of the problems or whether we bend the knee. If my people will humble themselves and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways and pray, then the promise comes, the promise kicks in of salvation and social transformation and sanctification in the church. And so um, this um, Indonesian pastor said to me, we just thought we'll see if 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14 is true because our nation is in a massive, massive mess. And so they began to pray night and day. November 1999 they started praying 24-7 all across Indonesia. And he said, we can trace that was the turning point. That was the moment the church turned. And actually now we're not just seeing the church in revival by any measure, even though they want to keep it quiet because um, uh, it's not in no one's interest. It's not in the Muslim government's interest to admit it. It's not in the church's interest to admit it. Uh, but also we began to see our society getting healed up. And so he took me to his prayer room. Well, they've been praying nonstop since 1999. And as we stepped in there, the presence of God was so strong. My friend Carla just fell to the ground under the power of the Holy Spirit. See, this is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It wasn't a flashy room, but God was in it. God, give me a room with God in it. I don't care whether there are worship leaders with skinny jeans and pretty pictures. Give me a church with God in it. Give me a nation with God in it. Amen? And so, um, and I, I was amazed by his story, you see, because as some of you know, and this is what, what's in that book, Red Moon Rising, I got hijacked at the same time, 1999, by prayer. And so on the 5th of September, 1999, just a few weeks before they started in Indonesia, just with my mates down on the south coast of England, we, we started to pray night and day in a warehouse. Because I knew that I was doing all the stuff, we planted two churches, they were going quite well, a few people getting saved. But I was just desperately thirsty to know God better. I was sick and tired of outsourcing my prayer life to godly old ladies. I was worried. I, I thought if I hear another story about God doing mighty miracles in other times in history or other parts of the world, I'm going to go mad. 
do it here, do it now. And most of all, I think if I'm really honest with you, brutally honest with you, I was afraid that one day, as the human applause faded, the flat line came and I stood before my creator. He would look me in the eyes and I'd start to hand in my CV. I planted churches, pastored, cared for people. And he would look at me and say, hey, Pete, isn't it? Do we know each other? St. Augustine said, Thou hast put salt on our lips that we might thirst for thee. Sometimes it's your tears that puts the salt there. And so we began to pray. We nicked an idea from the Moravians in the 18th century who prayed nonstop for 100 years and changed the course of Western history. None of us would be sitting in this room right now if they hadn't prayed the way they prayed then. They led John Wesley to Jesus. Uh, they, they, they were the first to take the gospel to many nations on earth. The great missions movement of Luther's Reformation did not come out of his seminaries. Reformed theology can't get you quite as far as you might like. It came out of a bunch of, listen carefully, refugees. Refugees who built a praying community in a place called Hernhut and prayed nonstop for 100 years. And that was the detonation of the great missions movement of the Reformation. And so we thought if they could pray nonstop for 100 years and change the world, we'll try a month. I had people tell me I was nuts. The rest of the church leadership team said, have you noticed we've only got three old ladies and a goat at our church prayer meeting? The goat's frankly not committed. (laughs) But we went for it. I figured if we only managed a week, it would still be more praying than we'd ever done before. And then what happened next was that His Majesty decided to take up residence in a room in a warehouse in a back street of a nowhere place called Chichester on the south coast of England. And people stepped in there and encountered him. And all the stuff, as a church leader, I was worried, you know, how will this, that, and the other happen, started to happen as people just spent time with God. Angelic visitations. Leukemia healed. A girl called Sam got saved one day and spent... Uh, an hour or two in the prayer room the next day and when I said wow you've been a Christian 24 hours and you just did like a two-hour prayer slot she said I assume this is what Christians do all the time so I just lied I said yeah that's exactly <laughs> normal uh, I remember an atheist actually a couple of atheists came to the prayer, prayer room and said wow you can really feel God in here can't you so I said yeah but you don't believe in him do you they said no you can feel him here, can't you? It's postmodern, you know. And then God sneezed, and the thing went viral and began to spread all around the world. And now we're in well over half the nations on earth. We've been praying nonstop since the 5th of September 1999. And I'll tell you a little bit in a sec about the Thy Kingdom Come thing, which is one of the recent manifestations of that prayer movement. But you know, it's not about us. We're just one, we just, we just happen to be on our surfboards at the right time. Because the very day we started, a guy called Mike Bickle in America started 24-7 prayer in Kansas City, feeling the call of God. And first time I met Mike, he said to me, we're the only people on earth doing it. <laughs> it was in a pub in Prague, funnily enough. I said, no, you're not. 
And he looked at me like quite angry. I was like, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be offensive, but at the same, we, we, we're doing it too. He said, what day did you start? I said, 5th of September, 99. He said, that's the day we started. So maybe it's bigger than both of us. And then Indonesia and God's just doing something. He's calling his people to pray. It's beyond any brand, any personality or any product. Thank God. But if you're not throwing yourself into the deep waters of prayer right now, you're probably missing out on one of the major things God is doing in his church in the Western world right now. I'm sorry, it's sober, but I've just got to be really clear with you. That is what's going on. He is calling his people to pray as never before. And, um, you know, we had this thing. We decided to celebrate the 15th birthday of 24-7 prayer. Weren't quite sure where. Couldn't believe it. We, we always thought after a year or so, this will fizzle out. We can all get back to things we were doing with our lives before. But after five years, we had the two different prophets came to us and said, prepare for 10 years. And we thought, that's a big chunk of anyone's life. And then we got to 15 years. And we were thinking, how should we celebrate? And I got a, a phone call one day on, on, on this mobile here. Uh, I didn't recognize the number. It was an international call. I took the call. And the voice at the other end said, um, I'm phoning on behalf of Cardinal Schoenborn. Now, Cardinal Schoenborn is the most senior... Um, Catholic in Austria and was favorite to become Pope and he helped choose Pope Francis and I'd never you know I don't normally get spam called by a very senior Catholic so it's like oh, how nice to hear you and the voice at the other end said the cardinal has instructed me I gather it is the 15th birthday of 24-7 prayer coming up I said well yeah uh, he said the cardinal has instructed me he would like to offer you um, his cathedral uh, in which to gather. And so I kind of said to him, well, I, I, that's incredibly kind, but you don't understand, 24-7 prayer movement, we're a bunch of scruffy what's-its. We mostly meet in kind of pubs and cafes and uh, World Heritage sites aren't really our thing. Now, I need to give you a tiny bit of background information so you can understand what happened next. I just received a prophecy a few days earlier from someone who said to me, God says... If you keep prioritizing the poor, I will give you the palaces. And at the time, um, I assumed it was metaphor, because amongst us charismatics, everything is metaphor, right? God was saying, just keep doing what you're doing with the poor, and you get a jacuzzi in heaven, you know. So I said, oh, thank you so much. Oh, that's such an encouragement. Mm. You know, Christians make noises that if you made in any other walk of life, you get arrested for. Mm. Oh, yeah. And um, so I had this word ringing in my mind, you know, if you keep prioritizing the poor, I'll give you the palaces. And I, I get this call, and I'm just turning down Cardinal Schoenborn's offer of St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna, and then the voice at the other end says, oh, that's a shame, because the Cardinal also instructed me to invite you to use his palace as well. And see, you guys probably get offered palaces all (laughs) the time. I'd never been offered one before. I don't really know people with palaces. Those who I might don't have a spare palace. And within days of this word, so suddenly I thought, oh my goodness, I'm getting spam called by God. I'm about to say no to God because it doesn't fit with me culturally. Hear that? 
So I gulped and said, that's incredibly kind. And we had this extraordinary moment in St. Stephen's Cathedral where Mozart used to sing in the choir. Kings and queens are buried in the center of Vienna, packed out with every kind of Christian you can imagine. We had messages from both the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Pope. And I'm, I'm having a head melt going, how did we get from a bunch of students praying in a back room of a nowhere place to the Pope sending us a birthday greeting, asking for our prayers? How did, I'm, I'm like you guys, I'm a house church boy. How did the, like, I don't even know what to think about this stuff, but God's doing something. And there were all these like big bearded Orthodox priests there worshipping and hipsters with skinny jeans and even bigger beards. You know, worshipping and the sweet little Ethiopian nuns and Salvation Army officers, come on, you know. And I looked around, tourists coming in going, what? This is going to be a tourist attraction. How dare you pack it out with people praying? (laughs) And I just sensed maybe the Lord was saying that these cathedrals could be houses of prayer. Right? At the psychological and geographical heart of every city in Europe, multi-million euro houses of prayer got built. What if they moved from being tourist attractions to proper pilgrimage sites once again? It's just like a little wonderment. And within a few days of that, Justin Welby approached me and said, I've got this idea about cathedrals. I'm like, ah, (laughs) interesting. How about Pentecost Sunday we pack out a cathedral or two with people just doing what we did 2,000 years ago saying come Holy Spirit praying as one church and then going out and preaching the gospel so I said that's a brilliant idea which cathedral should we do he said let's go for several I was like dude let's build up to this gently this one would be pretty amazing and so last year on Pentecost Sunday we had six cathedrals the Archbishop of Canterbury's faith was much greater than mine packed out Winchester so many people came that they had to take part on screens outside and then this year we were in 85 countries uh, 36 cathedrals all sorts of other events in um, Nottingham 250 separate prayer events in the 10 days building up to Pentecost Sunday that's three weeks ago 250 separate ones in um, Newcastle, the prayer broke out onto the streets and 530 people gave their lives to Jesus on the streets. Uh, in St. Anne's Cathedral in Belfast, they ran out of space. They couldn't fit any more people in and it was Catholics and Protestants interceding together as one in Jesus Christ. Hello? Christ's great unanswered prayer is that we'd be one. St. Paul's was packed. Guildford, here's, here's a picture of Guildford. This is, uh, I was, uh, this is just our local cathedral. We, we packed the inside with young people. Couldn't fit any more in. This is just the overflow outside a prayer meeting. At least 500 people, not for an event or a performance, but for prayer. And so something is stirring in an extraordinary way in our nation. The church is awakening. We are uniting. There is a new passion for prayer. The seasons are changing. There is an urgency, a gear change. And it's exciting because, as you know, every major movement of the Spirit of God, every major revival in history began with a movement of prayer. And right now we are in the middle of arguably the greatest movement of prayer that we have seen in the United Kingdom in our lifetimes. Amen? I cannot say it's all going to kick in on that day, but I can tell you this. 
This is the church of Jesus Christ beginning to wake up in this nation. Some of you have prayed for it for years. You are Simeons and Annas. Thank you. It's all your fault. We are reaping where you have sown. And some of you, you're new to this thing. You just got saved at a really good time because there is the sound of a heavy rain in our nation. Every revival begins in prayer. The hinge of human history is the bended knee. Elijah. Remember, we're talking about Elijah here. It's extraordinary to see the parallels in this story between his showdown with the prophets of Baal and the story of the cross. There's a sacrifice and an altar. There is blood that flows from the sacrifice and water three times baptizing. There is fire that falls. It's all taking place in God's vineyard. So we've got a communion metaphor there. And it's all about lordship. So we have this Old Testament sort of like foreshadowing of what's going to happen on another hill with Jesus as he lays down his life. Hold that thought. The context for Elijah's prayer up Carmel is persecution. It is conflict. The consequence of Elijah's prayer is power. It is city transformation in Jezreel. The compulsion of Elijah to pray is, now this is very important, God's promise. Because in verse 1 of this chapter, God has said, I, it's time for the drought to end. Three and a half years has been drought, now I'm going to send the rain. So the reason why Elijah, immediately after the showdown, hears the sound of a heavy rain, is he knows God has spoken it. It's that time for God's words to kick in. It's not just some mystical experience. Oh, the sound of seashells. You know, I wonder what it is. He knows God's spoken. His mystical experiences are rooted in a revelation and the very promise of God over the nation. The key to effective intercession in your lives, your families, your workplaces, your churches is to get hold of the promise of God and hear it before there's anything to hear, see it before there's anything to see and pull it in seven times interceding with your head between your knees. You understand? Get hold of the promise of God for we walk by faith and not by sight. You are not a puppet of your hormones, of your bank balance, of what you see in the mirror, of whether your husband yelled at you this morning. You are defined by the word of God. You are filled with his spirit. You are called by his purposes. And so we live by the truth of God's revelation in scripture and the prophetic word as it animates that scripture in the present context. Let me tell you a story. So God challenged me a, um, a little while ago, a few years ago now, that my prayers for my own kids were pretty vague. I, I'd got into praying prayers like this, because oh, I love my boys. I've got two sons. Uh, my, my prayers were sort of like, oh, Lord, would, would you just bless, really, really just bless them today, Lord. Mm. Yeah. Help them not to you know, grow up and become the antichrist. You know, it was those kind of prayers, you know. And I just sense God going, great, yeah, but what do you want me to do for you, Pete? I mean, what are you actually asking for my kids? And of course, the temptation is to go, well, you're God, you know. 
I'm just making murmuring, grunting noises down here. But you have to understand, you know, Pascal says God has instituted prayer in order to bestow upon his creatures the dignity of causality. There are things that will only happen if you articulate them, think about them, ask for them, pray for them. They will not happen unless you pray about them. Jesus says you must pray thy kingdom come because it's not automatic. There are things happening in our world right now because the people of God are not interceding about them. There are terrible evils. We see the evil that happens in our world, but there are terrible, there's terrible evil that would be happening in our world if the people of God were not interceding the way they are. That's what Oregon, one of the church fathers, said. We're holding back the tide of evil. Why is there so much goodness in the world is really the great, great question, the light of the fall. And so God says, well, what do you actually want me to do for your kids, Pete? And one of my spiritual directors came to me and said, Pete, one of the things you need to do is just go and get the word of God for your kids. Now, this applies to your, your workplaces, to your churches, your towns, your city. Have you heard the word of God for those contexts? So I took a day out to just listen to the Lord. Say, okay, God, why did you make my boys? When you knit them together in their mother's womb, what is the calling that you placed upon their lives? Because you can tell for sure that whatever God's purpose is for your kids, it's going to be contested. It's not just kind of an upward conveyor belt. There's going to be rocky days and months and years. And so I spent some time asking the Lord, what is it? What, what are you saying for my boys? And God gave me a number of promises. And one of the promises I got was this. That scripture says of Jesus, he grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man. And, and I, I just I strongly sensed God's saying, I, I want your boys to grow in wisdom, stature, and favor with, with people, but also in heaven. And I began to pray differently, so my prayer started to look like this. God, at school today, may they grow in wisdom, may they learn stuff, but may they grow in heavenly wisdom as well. May they see stuff, may there be revelation upon them, and may, may they grow in stature. You know, may they grow and become head boy or whatever it is. With, with man, but may they also grow in stature in heaven. So I began to pray much more specific prayers. You say to me, what difference does it make? Let me tell you the difference praying the promises of God made. Let me tell you. Within days of starting to pray like that, one of our sons sat bolt upright in bed at nine o'clock at night and shouted for Sammy and me. We ran upstairs assuming he was about to puke up and he said the most extraordinary thing to hear from a boy his age. He said, I need God. I want to pray that prayer thing. I said, like becoming a Christian? Yeah, I need it. And now, thinking, where did this come from? You know. So I had the great privilege of kneeling with my son and leading him to Jesus. Now that would be good. That would be a fairly specific and quite quick answer to praying more specifically. But let me tell you this, and this is a bit of the story I think God's partly given me to help us all understand the power dynamics at play when something like that happens. My sister-in-law phones me. And she says, what happened to, and names this particular son, on that particular night? I said, why do you ask? Now she lives about 40 miles away. She, she knows the Lord but she's not going to church right now. She's not exactly on fire for the Lord, you know. She said, the weirdest thing happened. I had a dream about him that night, and it was so weird. I just wondered if there was anything going on with him. I said, okay, well, tell me about your dream. She said, well, in the dream, there was a man in your house. I think it was an angel. He invited you and Sammy into your study. And he said this, your son, name the son, has been noticed 
in heaven. And here is how you're to raise him. So the very night, just days after starting to pray, let him grow in wisdom, such and favor with God and with man. He sits up, bolt upright, and says, I need to give my life to the Lord. And his aunt receives a dream in which an angel says he's been noticed in heaven. Hello? Do you understand the power of getting hold of the promise of God? And rather than trying to make God all the time say amen to your desires, you say, I'm going to live my life as an amen to his desires. Now, what do you want to do? And I'll pray it in. What are you saying? And I'll preach it in. What are you, where are you going? And I'll bring it to bear on a situation. And so we begin to become a response to God's initiative. We see a beautiful example of this in 1 Chronicles 17. King David's doing well. The kingdom's under control. He's got himself a nice house. And he suddenly realized God doesn't have a nice house. So one, don't, you don't need to look it up. We're just going to touch on this. But 1 Chronicles 17 verse 1. David says, I'm going to build God a house. Verse 2. Nathan the prophet says, whatever you have in mind, do it. For God is with you. Verse 10. God says, thanks but no thanks. In fact, David, I so like you. I'm going to build you a house. Wait, wait. This has begun with David going, I've got a really nice house. God hasn't got a house. I'm going to build God a house, a temple. And then God, who's just, you cannot outgive God, goes, no, 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 I'm okay. I kind of got the whole earth, actually, and cosmos. God says, I, I, I'm going to build you a house that's going to last forever. The house of David. And it says this, I love this, verse 16, hear this, hear this, imagine this. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. I love that. He just sat before the Lord. He stunned. And he said, who am I, Lord? What is my family that you have brought me this far? Verse 23, Lord, let the promise that you have made concerning your servant and his house be established forever. Now listen to this. Here we have the four most powerful words you will ever pray. David says, do as you promised. Do as you promised. The four most powerful words you will ever use in prayer are not in the name of Jesus. It's not a magic trick. Do as you promised. What has God promised for your husband? What has God promised for your workplace? What has God promised? Why did he create your city or your town? What are the covenants between godly men and women that formed your community? Find the promise of God for the word of God endures forever. And as a people, as a people of God, call to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. Pull heaven's reality into your family, into your workplace, into your school, into your streets. You must be defined by the word and the promise and the purpose of God and then pull that in because you look around and say I don't see the purpose of God down here of course you don't you see the purpose of God in the person of Christ pull in the purpose and the promise of God and it is extraordinarily powerful do as you promise that's what Elijah's doing God has promised the rain is going to end he hears the sound of a heavy rain it's what Jesus says ask anything in my name and it will be done for you I suspect some of you here today are a little bit like Elijah. You've gone through the sacrifice and the blood and the water and the fire of the foothills of Carmel. 
you've encountered Christ's lordship, you've accepted his sacrifice, you've been baptized in water and fire, but if you're honest, drought prevails in a particular part of your life. Curses remain unbroken. Promises that God has spoken remain unfulfilled. When you find yourself in that place, you must do what Elijah does. You must climb Carmel, bow with your head between your knees, and pray in what God has said. Seven times, that's perfection, right? Persevere, keep persevering. Keep stacking dominoes until the breakthrough comes. Don't stop praying one prayer too soon. This God isn't a slot machine, you know? It's not an instant answer. Prayers, says Mark Batterson, are prophecies. They are the best predictors of our spiritual future. Who you become is determined by how you pray. And ultimately, the transcript of your prayers becomes the script of your life. And of course, Elijah sees this cloud eventually, or a servant does, just tiny, the size of a man's fist. And he senses this great urgency. Suddenly he knows it's about to happen. It's not like the whole sky is filled with rain clouds. He just sees one cloud and he knows it's about to happen. And some of you, you are in that place today. You are hearing the sound of a heavy rain. You're glimpsing small clouds on the horizon. You're sensing that the seasons are changing. If you're honest, you have been relatively hidden for a season. Some of you, even over this time together, have been called from Mount Carmel into the city to run with new authority and new energy ahead of the king's chariot into the city. Jezreel means God sows. And the city is a place that we sow. We sow in education. We sow in enterprise. We sow in culture. We sow in our families. We build. We do, you know, we're not called to plant churches. Don't settle for that. We're called to plant cities. And one of the best ways of, of driving that is to plant churches. Do you understand? George Eldon Ladd, one of the greatest Pentecostal theologians, says the church is the primary agency of the kingdom of God. But it is not the kingdom of God. It is the primary agency. So invest into church. But church is just where it begins. It's not where it ends. We're called to build a great, beautiful, wonderful world in and through and for the glory of Jesus. And it begins with his promises in prayer. So I'd love us just to pray for a couple of people, if that's all right. I wonder if we get the band back. Come and play some New Age-style music on the keyboard to manipulate emotions. It would be great. Anything from sort of a Lynx deodorant advert in the 1980s would be terrific. (laughs) The first thing I I, I sense is this, that um, God is saying to some of you, I have seen the sacrifices that you've made and I've seen your faithfulness in prayer I have heard your prayers I have heard your prayers imagine Anna and Simeon they hold an incontinent inarticulate baby and they say we have seen the purposes of God fulfilled <laughs> Elijah cloud the size of a man's hand there's a heavy rain coming some of you you're in that place 
You think this isn't everything I prayed for, but it's begun. And God wants to say, I have seen your faithfulness and I've heard your prayers. As I was preparing, I sensed that for some of you, this time together at Together 17 is going to mark a new season for you. It's a gear change moment. You'll look back on this as a, as a, as a time of, of change. And it's going to be marked by increased authority. Your, your history does not determine your destiny. Some of you are saying, well, I just don't do that. Or oh, God just doesn't use me in that way. But this is a time to lay hold, to eagerly desire what God has for you. Okay? And I just sense for some of you, if you lay hold of it, there's going to be an increased authority. Look at the authority on Elijah here. Some of you starting new businesses. Some of you, there's uh, new positions at work. And what God is doing is he's taking you from Carmel into Jezreel. He's, he's sending you to run ahead of the king's chariot and to sow his kingdom in the city. Okay? And, and some of you know particular areas. Someone here, it's to do with a school. And I don't know if the promotion has just come or it's just coming. But he's sending you into that school to sow for a harvest. You spent years praying for it. But you've, you've seen the cloud the size of a man's hand. And, 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 and there's a sowing coming. Someone else, it's local government. God says you're not just there randomly as a job. You used to know you were called, but recently you've begun to question the calling. But he says, I have sent you there to sow for a great harvest. And it's time to move in greater authority, for I hear the sound of a heavy rain. But then I, I, I'm sure there are others where the call of God on you today is less from Carmel into the city and more from the sacrifice up the hill. He is calling you to push deeper in prayer. Notice that Elijah's route from A to B is via C. He doesn't just say, kind of, Jesus, Lord, you know, we've won against the prophets of Baal. Now let's get into the city and do the stuff. He first of all withdraws into the place of prayer. And, and there's always that season, we see it with all the people of God have been called in prayer. Some of you are persevering in prayer. You're like Elijah, head between your knees, praying in. You hear the sound, but you haven't seen it yet. Some of you, there's a particular challenge around this thing of laying hold of the promises of God, not just praying vaguely. Even the word revival can be totally meaningless. What do you want me to do for you? Says God, to which the clever answer is, what is it you want to do? And then you get hold of his word. And I just wonder if there are a few people here, if you're really honest, you've been tempted to downgrade the word of God in your life. There have been disappointments. You've been praying so long that if you're honest, you've just started to reduce hope. Because you're just like, how much longer do I have to keep praying? A loss of hope for your family, a loss of hope for your workplace. Loss of hope that words that have been spoken over you are going to come to pass. And here at Together 17, he wants to renew hope. 
Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with peace and joy as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's just pray for those people. If, if you know that's you, you just, yeah, I, I, I just need fresh hope. I, I've been praying so long. I've been tempted to downgrade my expectations. Just stand where you are, uh, those who, who, who that affects. I'd love us just to pray for those people. You're in this season, up Carmel, persevering in prayer, longing to see the clouds, sending the servant back again and again and again. Now, if there's someone standing near you, and there probably is, just stretch out a hand towards them. I want you just to pray. Fresh hope, fresh grace to persevere, fresh revelation, fresh faith. These are not things we get by clenching our our buttocks and trying to work it up. They come from the revelation, the impartation of the Spirit. So can you just pray? Pray your best prayer over these people. This really matters.